and for me personally, I've really found this as I've tried to align all of the little areas of my life and the interactions I have to make sure I'm coming from the same sorts of values and using those same values in all of the areas. My life has become infinitely more simple, but yeah. also infinitely more meaningful because every little opportunity or interaction or area of my life is moving me towards the same goals. And so that means that your life suddenly becomes really meaningful. Even the mundane, ordinary things that you need to do to stay alive on earth can become something meaningful if you're doing them from that, from the right intention. That, my friend, was Vajin Armstrong. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, how you all doing? My name is Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. What a treat we have for you this week, one of the Ultra Runners' most interesting runners, Vajin Armstrong. Not only has he podiumed some of the world's toughest races, but he brings with him a different dimension into the sport. A follower of the Indian spiritual leader Srishin Moy, who was the creator of the Srishin Moy self-transcendence race in New York, Vajin lives a life of peace and harmony through his meditation practices, which he uses to great benefit as he is able to transcend into a flow state whilst running. Before we start, I'd just like to give a shout out to More Mountain Adventures. Why not join me for a day in the hills on one of our single day bucket list hikes, or even better, on one of our two day expeditions where we supply top of the range camping equipment such as North Face and Nordis tents. We've gone over and above to ensure that you get the opportunity to experience the rawness of the mountains as they were intended. If interested, why not join us on Facebook by checking out More Mountain Adventures, offering a wide range of activities from trail running to five-day mountain excursions. Not to delay you any further, it's with great pleasure I give you Vajin Armstrong. I'm not somebody who does much prep because what I like to do, I like the podcast just to flow whatever direction it wants to go. Yeah, good. Um, so I give myself one hour of prep before each interview and i even yeah. though i want to go and listen to previous podcasts and interviews i don't want to be um, influenced by them in any way or form yeah that's a good idea um but it gave me a problem with you <laughs> yeah because you have there's almost two podcasts there well there is two podcasts yeah. that interest me and there's this whole spiritual aspect um to who you are as an individual and yeah. you know Shrishin Moy and things like that. And then there's yeah. the, the running aspect. So I, I was thinking to myself, how, how do I how do I put a like structure or a path? How do I lay a path down that we can sort of go down? Um, yeah. So I'm going to start with sort of the Shrishin Moy part. Um, yeah. Because I think that's really very important. Because um, I, yeah. I sort of weave in and out of getting that sense so tell me a bit a bit about a, a bit about Shrisha Moy and how you sort of got introduced into that yeah well I mean it's 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 good that you brought up those two aspects because although they seem separate like the big thing for me in my life is trying to get everything in alignment and going in the same direction so although some parts of my life you could think oh well you know the running is something different from the practice of meditation and and then in the rest of my life, I've got a lot of other things going on as well. Um, I import musical instruments and sell those. Um, I coach. Um, you know, I teach meditation as well. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different things. I organize races. I'm a race director in New Zealand. So there's a lot of <laughs> things going on. 
but they all have a common thread for me and they all come from that source of meditation. So for me, that practice of meditation is really the key element that flows into all of the different areas of my life. And that really influences how I approach everything from how I approach doing business to how I approach the art of coaching, how I approach my running, how I approach putting on races. Everything I do has this this subtle or strong influence from that practice of meditation and so that really yeah for me that's the foundation and that's the key to everything I do and and I always try and bring it back whenever I'm embarking on a different endeavor or I'm changing activities or I'm looking at the problems that I've got to deal with in different areas that's always the biggest influence on all of the things that I do yeah that's pretty cool I I have a, a meditation practice which I do daily um, 10 minutes of meditation yeah. every yep. morning. Um, I do it in a hot Epsom salt bath. <laughs> and, and oh, lovely. It's sort of a luxurious aspect to it. But one thing to yeah. your point there, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm in that same location and it's almost a reset every single yeah. day that it's, well, here I am in the same environment. What happens, you know, after this? Um, every day it, it comes back to that and it's a great, base layer or grounds me if you like back to that place because it can go off those 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 streams can go off crazy can't they you know and it it brings all of it back together in that one point to to start again yeah and i think having that any practice i mean people have all sorts of practices to try and keep themselves connected and grounded and so some people find a seated meditation practice some people find a moving meditation like tai chi or any of the different forms of um, moving meditation practices, the yoga asanas, the postures. Um, some people will just find that their time in nature, they might go for a walk every morning. But I think it's a common experience in human life, especially as our world has become more disconnected from nature and more complex, that we have consciously needed to take that time on a daily basis to keep ourselves connected, to keep ourselves grounded, and to remind ourselves what is and what we really value so I think just the same as you have your Epsom salt bath you know I'll get up in the morning I'll wash my face I'll sit down at my shrine or my meditation area and I'll do my practice every day and so I've done that for the last 23 24 years and that's the one commonality that I have on every single day no matter where I'm going or what I'm doing I'll always make sure as soon as I get up that'll be the first thing I do so that provides a strong it's a, like a strong I mean, it's almost like anyone who tries to do anything well, like a tennis player or like you look at the Olympics, a high jumper um, or a long jumper, someone who is trying to do something to a really high level every time they try and come back to the same foundation to start again. So, you, you know, the high jumper walks back after the next attempt, forgets about the previous attempt and tries to use the same steps and put themselves in the best possible place for a good performance for the next attempt. And so I think in in life, that's a cool thing to have. Like every day you have your little routine that you go through to set yourself up the best way possible you can to have the best possible chance to have a successful day. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I would look at it, like as an analogy to to what's going on in the Olympics anyway. Yeah, you you couldn't have put that better, actually. But it is an awareness, isn't it? You know, it's or it gives you awareness, should I say, you know, because the world is full of so many distractions I've got so many yeah. friends who, you know, meditation and, and, you know, that heebie-jeebie sort of words and world, you know, and they're like, oh, man, but, you know, 
you just get caught up before I found meditation and it was through a busy working environment where I tried everything yeah. else. Um, yeah. And I found it, well, I wouldn't be doing mountain guided now if I hadn't found meditation because it gave me the space in this world of distraction um, to understand, yeah. you know, it grounded me and gave me the space to think, hmm, is what, am I happy with what's going on now? You know, have I, can, can I yeah. control that? And it's very empowering. Yeah. You know, it gave me that, that strength, I suppose. And I think, I think that's a very common experience because we found ourselves in a very unnatural situation in some ways where the amount of information coming into us every day is far greater than the information someone would deal with in a week or a month in previous, you know, previous eras. So there's just this absolute flood of information and all of that information is very much stimulating one part of our being, which we could call our mind or that rational analytical part of our being. So we're constantly feeding that part of ourselves, but we're taking so little time to balance that out with those pursuits or those times in our day where we're present and we're connected and like being in nature or taking time to, to, to be walk on the beach or to, to think deeply about some issues or, some ideas that are really important and, and valuable for you in your life. And so we've, it's very much we've, we've been forced to, in some way, I think, look to see how we can try and counterbalance those negative impacts that the modern world's having. And it, it really shows with the growth of, of the practice of yoga, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation. I mean, when I learned to meditate in the 1990s, there weren't there weren't so many options available. Now you've got a whole heap of apps available. You've got all sorts of different meditation centers. You've got all sorts of different meditation teachers out there offering the practice. So obviously shows that it is fulfilling a need that a lot of people have. And there's probably a lot more people that could benefit from meditation, but perhaps they haven't, perhaps the idea of it, or they, they have a wrong idea of it. They think of it as something that, perhaps is overtly religious or overtly requiring them to have a belief system. But the great thing about real spiritual practice is that it doesn't require you to believe anything. The Buddha was a great one. He said, listen to what I say and put it into practice. And if it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work for you, then, then do something else. Because spiritual people, I think, are the most practical people because they're in some way trying to find out how can I live a life that is better in tune or more in alignment with reality as it presents itself to me. That's really the game of spirituality or any of the spiritual traditions. It's how can I align my behaviors and my actions, and my thoughts, so I'm better aligned to flourish and blossom in the world of reality. So there's the internal aspect, but you're always measuring it against the reality that you're finding yourself in. So if you think, that you have an idea that, okay, this is going to be the right practice for me. You start doing it, but then your life falls apart. It's, it's obviously, it's, you need to listen to that and pay attention and think, okay, well, this is not quite working to bring me into alignment. So you need to shift your practice into something that does work. And, and when you do find something that does work, that's why it's great to make it a, a discipline and a routine because it, it's, it's the most important thing. If you can find a set of behaviors that helps you be a better version of yourself, there's not really anything more valuable to spend your time doing than that. You know, you could spend your time trying to make more money or be more successful in different areas. But if it's at the price of your happiness and meaning and purpose and all of those higher order goods, 
yeah, you, you need to go back and reassess again. We should have had this interview about five years ago, you know. <laughs> this could yeah. have, have helped me a lot more back then. Like, um, What I'm listening to there, though, it's sort of, for me, you were describing your sort of intuition. And there is no yeah. specific, everybody's intuition is slightly different because we're made up differently. Yeah. So there is no one direct path of spirituality for each individual. No. It's different for each person. And if you can, like learning how to let go of all those distractions and, and other people's yardsticks is a very yeah. difficult thing because you're conditioned right from the very beginning through school, et cetera, to think yeah. that way. And you don't come out of school thinking, you know, I'm a fantastic individual who's got a lot of potential to offer the world. That just doesn't happen. No. You know, you're good at maths or you're good at science. You know, you're good in sport. Yeah. And you come out with that sort of thought process. But today, I think um, things are changing an awful lot because of social media and the resources that are there that people can pick up. And people are more and more... The COVID actually has been in a roundabout way a good time for people to exercise their intuition yeah. i feel because people have been forced to look for other alternatives and making money and things like that there's been this handbrake on the planet almost through covid which is yeah in ireland we, we've we've been extremely lucky you know we've seen like killer whales appear in local lots that have never been there oh you know, dolphins thing. dolphins moving into locks and you know it was quite unique what happened in the world you know during the covid situation and people you know start moving into the mountains and getting reconnected and yeah you know, it has changed things which i think what we're talking about is more important um not more important but more relevant should i say in this moment because people can recognize it more but intuition the first thing has to be like self-realization, I suppose, in trying to create some space and finding out who you are. Yeah, I would use the word self-awareness. Yeah, and yeah. I think, I think that's what the practice, whatever your practice has to be, has to be founded on that base of becoming more aware of yourself and your proclivities or your habitual ways of thinking or how you normally um, tend to uh, respond to stimulus or confrontations or, or whatever it is but so for me my practice is simply 30 minutes of seated silent meditation every morning and so I'll just sit down um, I have a little meditation area in my room I'll sit in front of that and I'll just try and focus all of my awareness uh, into what I would call the spiritual heart or just really the center of my being I try and bring my awareness down from the mind drop it down into the heart and then just try and spend that next 30 minutes just sitting in that space of openness without thinking, without analyzing, without judging, and just be present to the consciousness that really flows and exists deep within me and within all of us. It's the same sort of awareness that seems to flow through the natural world. It flows through the cosmic world. It seems though at the heart of everything, there's some deeper level of, of awareness. And so that's what I try and do, just sink and sit in that place. And every time I become aware of my thoughts taking me away, simply bring myself back to that place of stillness. And so practicing that for 20 plus years, you start to develop an ability to sit in that place of, of, of stillness. But that's, that awareness spills into every other area of your life. So it's when I get up and I go into work or I go meet with some friends or I go talk with some athletes, 
I'm more self-aware and I'm also more present. I'm more, it's more, I'm more easily present to what's going on. So instead of my mind acting as, uh, as a separating factor between reality and, and myself or between experience and myself, we, we've all had that experience where we're sitting with someone or talking with someone we know and, they might be talking to you and you might notice something about their physical appearance and you think, my God, his nose is looking massive today. Or, you know, you think you th the thought pops in like, oh, geez, you know, he's already told me this. Or all those little things that act as a block between you and the person, the experience of the person you're actually with. Those moments separate you from the experience of, of reality. And so learning to let those things go and actually to truly be present to someone suddenly reveals so much about reality. It reveals how marvelous and amazing and inspiring people are. It reveals how amazing and complex and beautiful this world we live in. When you really experience reality as it is without all your filters and your judgments and your expectations, it never disappoints you. The, the true experience of reality will never disappoint you because it's so much more complex and beautiful and crazy and amazing than you could really ever imagine so that's one of the, that's one of the big things that that i've found one of the biggest benefits i've found from the practice is how it's impacted my ability to be present and and then bringing it back to that idea of intuition that is the, that is the key to to playing the game of life well because there have been a lot of traditions over time that have tried to tell you the story that We've got this book of rules. This book of rules will tell you what to do in every circumstance. And if you try and live your life, the complexity of life based on a fixed set of rules, you start to realize how much of an impossible task that is. Because every moment is different and every moment you're different and the people you're dealing with are different and there's an infinite amount of complexity. So learning to actually judge in the moment, or not even judge, but to actually feel inwardly which direction you should take or which path you should follow or how you should respond to someone. That seems to be the only real way of dealing with this infinite complexity is almost surrendering the control and accepting reality as it is and dealing with it in the best possible way you can in that moment. And so that's the other thing that the self-awareness and the intuition probably are two of the biggest things that I've learned over the years. So that's amazing. How, how can people like if people sitting at home listening to this, um, who haven't sort of experienced that because overthinking is such a, I don't want to use a word pandemic, but it almost is a, a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I'd say that is the, the great problem of our times is we've become so comfortable outwardly, but yet, our health is suffering because of mental health issues. And so much of our mental health issues is related to that, that constant stimulation and that inability to switch off, that inability to be present and to let all of that weight of thoughts and responsibilities and the conflicts and the crisis, all of that. If you carry around all of that psychological drama with you 24 hours a day, which, I mean, for most people, when they wake up in the morning until they go to bed in the evening, they're constantly following a train of thoughts. And a lot of the time, it's not until you consciously try and stop that train of thoughts. That's the only time you actually realize how 
pointless so many of your thoughts are. You, you repeat the same thought. I think they've shown that 80% of the thoughts you have today are repeats of thoughts you had yesterday. So especially when you find yourself in a negative state or a negative thought pattern, those type of things just seem to repeat over and over again. So learning, learning a way to be present and to be still and it's almost like stepping out of your um, sympathetic nervous system all the time. Because I think there was, I was reading something recently just talking about the stress in our lives. 80% of the stress we face in our life is now psychological. Only 20% mm -hmm. of it is physical stress. Whereas for ancient human beings, I would say it was probably 90% physical and 10% psychological. So we've really flipped the way we're experiencing stress, you know, 180 degrees. So now most of us have physically an incredibly easy life, but psychologically, we've got an incredibly demanding and difficult life. I mean, just looking at you as someone who was in the corporate game, I mean, when you open up your inbox every morning and you look at all the emails you've got there to, to reply to, there's a certain amount of anxiety and stress just created every time that you look in your, inside your own inbox. And then now the fact that you have your you know access to your emails at all times it's just this constant low-level anxiety and stimulation that you you never get a chance to go from the, the fight or flight system back into the rest and relax system. And so even when you're in your own time away from work and away from your responsibilities, most of us are never more than a meter from our phone. And so any time that thing beeps or, or rings or buzzes, we, uh, we've conditioned ourselves to have to pick that thing up and look at what it is. And... We, ca we haven't learned how to separate the times in our lives where, okay, this is the time for working, this is the time for me, because we've almost forgotten what the time for me is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about being connected, about being present, about spending time with the people we love, about doing the things that fill us up with meaning and purpose. So then perhaps we have to take, then we can take on the responsibilities that we have and the rest of our time from a place of, of contentment rather than you know, being stressed at home and then coming into work and piling more stress and difficulties and troubles on top of that. There seems to be a great need for some interventions into our lives to separate out those two areas and to learn how to actually really spend the time when we're not working in the best possible way. I have tried to explain that in so many different ways in the past. Yeah. Now I'm just going to give them this podcast here. Listen to that. Um, I, I was sort of lucky in the corporate world in a roundabout way. Yeah. Um, I was getting 150 emails a day, uh, 25 meetings a day, team of 18 people. So a lot of stresses. And when I say lucky, um, I developed a tension headache. Okay. Yeah. And to me, that was eventually I seen that as my gift because it was my sense of balance. So my body was actually talking to me and saying, whoa, Robbie, whoa, Robbie, you know, this is too much information, too much information. Um, yeah. And everything you described there, I started keeping a logbook, so I had the tension headaches like 90% of the time. And every yeah, time, gosh. everything you explained, this was something I had to go through to get to where I was. So it was, it was a good, yeah. positive thing. Um, and what I found was every time I didn't have it, um, the main thing that stood out was I was present in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, I had detached from those things. And I mean, it was a constant tension headache. So if I was out watching my son playing football or I was going Jeez. for a, a mountain run, it just switched yeah. off. And I, it was so sensitive to overthinking as in moving into the future. It would just come on straight away. 
And yeah. hence you can see why meditation then actually brought that back. It was a self, I had no self-awareness then. I was in a yeah. constant overthinking mood, which was normal to me. I'd been there for almost 40 years, to be honest. Um, yeah, exactly. But it was a trick. We, we haven't modeled good, healthy behaviors around dealing with stress. And because our world has transformed itself so radically so quickly, it's going to obviously take some time for us to catch up, for our lifestyles to catch up to what we're asking our bodies to do. So, yeah, I mean, you're lucky. It's, it's good that you see that it was a positive, that there was some, some message that you needed to receive. Yeah, and you're, that's an important thing as well. Your body is giving you a lot of messages. Um, one yeah. thing that sort of I struggled with was because of the amount of mental stress that I was going through, I knew that was very toxic to my body. Um, you know, your, your, the amount of stress cortisol in your body is producing. And when you talked about it not coming down, I had this analogy of, okay, when I left work, you know, the tiger has left the village, um, yeah. but he's still in the forest. <laughs> You know, so, yeah. so your body wasn't coming right down because it was like eight hours a day of being chased by a tiger around the village and you know he's in the forest yeah. so your your mind wouldn't come down overnight it's not a matter so it, it takes some sort of longer term practice um to be able to reconnect and actually make sure the tiger's gone you know and yeah. then you get control over that how were you introduced into that like was there you said 20 years so you know your first start part of your life obviously you're not born with this knowledge um it sounds that you were very no. lucky to get it at an early age yeah so i mean for me i had a really it was an incredibly important moment in my life when i was 14 going on 15 and so it was the first time i got a glimpse that there was a world of consciousness beyond that which i was experiencing and so it basically came down to, I'd stayed, I was, uh, this was in 1994, I stayed over at a friend's house, I got up really early in the morning and was walking back to my house, and I had my Walkman on, and I was walking through a park, and I was flicking through the stations, and I just came to the sound of the ocean, so there was, the local student radio station in Christchurch just played the sound of the ocean overnight, or at some point in the morning, and so it was just the ocean washing in, and washing out, the odd seagull, and it was late summer and I turned around and I was watching the sun rise over our local hills um, in Christchurch here. And just something happened in that moment. It was so aesthetically beautiful. There was like the sun was coming up, um, you know, there's that beautiful golden light. There's the sound of the ocean. And in that moment, it was the first moment I really got completely present and connected to myself, to the moment, to reality. And I felt this amazing sense of expansion inside my heart. I'd, I'd say it's like every, it's, it's like every time I breathed in, my awareness expanded. So I expanded from my body into the park and I could feel my connection to the plants and the trees around me. And then I'd breathe in again and I felt this another expansion to the city and, and all of the inhabitants and all of the, the comings and goings going on in our city. And then it kept on expanding until I could feel the whole world inside my heart. And there was just this overwhelming sense of love. That was the, that's the, it was, it was in that moment, I could say truly, I understood the nature of the universe. I understood my part in the great plan and scheme of things. I understood what it meant to be a conscious being part of a infinitely complex universe. And in that moment, everything was perfect and everything made sense. And it lasted for probably two or three minutes. 
And then suddenly my rational analytical brain kicked back in and was like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and so I ran back to my friend's house and I woke him up and I said, hey, hey, I understand the universe. And, <laughs> you know, another 14-year-old kid, he was less than impressed to be woken up because I'd had this this revelation. But that that really kicked off a whole journey in my life to seek some answers as to is there a way to alter your consciousness? Is there a way to step into a deeper and more fulfilling way of life? And is there something beyond the facade or the, the is there something behind the curtain? If we peek behind the curtain, is there nothing there or is there everything there? And it <laughs> seemed for me that everything that was interesting was hidden behind the curtain. And so that really started that journey. And so it took me several years to find meditation. And so early mid nineties in Christchurch wasn't really a hotbed of, of meditation. So it wasn't until 1998 that I found some people offering some meditation workshops through the Sri Chinmoy center. And that's when I turned up there and that's how I really started um, in earnest, the practice that I'm, I'm been following to this day. Cause Sri Chinmoy, um, I was aware of him through the race, the race <laughs> in New York, yeah, the self transcendent, um, 3,100 yeah, miles. Yeah, race exactly. like, um, and that's like a, a cur- I almost used to put a crazy race. In some ways, it is a crazy race, but you're 52 days yeah. like to complete this 3,100 miles. But it's about practicing everything we just talked about. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's a good insight to have that each race has a goal. So some races, you know, you go to the Olympics, the goal is to, to try and win an Olympic gold medal. Um, you know, you go to some races where it's just set up for everyone to try and run a fast time. You turn up to the Barclay or the um, Badwater, and it's just about making people suffer as much as possible. And so that race has a very particular aim, and it's that aim is to force you to have to go as deep within as you possibly can to find the resources you need to finish that race because that race strips away everything that you could possibly outwardly rely on. So it takes away any aesthetic beauty. It's in New York City in the middle of summer on the sidewalk around one city block. So there's nothing aesthetically beautiful about it. There's no fans. There's no fanfare. There's no... um, even, Even the kudos and respect you might get from some of the other big races perhaps doesn't exist in that race in the same sort of way because the people turning up there are very much there on an inner journey. They know that this race is going to strip them bare and force them to rely on some level of surrender or grace or something beyond themselves to get to that finish line. So, I mean, it's a sort of race where you get to 26 days in and you've still got 26 days to go and you've already been knocking out 60, 70 mile days in the unbelievable heat and humidity of a New York City summer. So it's it's a really amazing and interesting event to, to see. I've been been over a few times when it's been on and been down and supported the runners. And and it's not something that, that I see myself doing at any point soon, but it's something that I infinitely appreciate and admire the people who take on that challenge because I know how uh, real and raw that experience is yeah it's, it's a strange thing for me because i had this corporate challenge that was going on but at the same time um i was i came into sport late like my mid-30s yeah 
Um, I've done like the World Major Marathons and things like that. I'm not a fast runner, yeah. um, like a 3.30, relatively fast. I've done yeah, it again. Cool. Um, but I moved into the world of ultra running then. And this parallel yeah. path, the two of them were, I found to be very combined because it was a path of self-discovery for me, you know. Yeah. I didn't have a real strong belief system um, when I started yeah. that. And there's one moment that you were talking about there. I was doing CCC and um, like I hadn't eaten in five hours. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. this is the second half of the race, about three quarters of the way yeah. through it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to give up at this stage. And something amazing happened that will always stick with me. I was stripped yeah. down totally. You know, I had no energy. I just had no care. All I just yeah. knew was I had to move forward. And yeah. it was the first time I would say in my life that I really found peace. You know, it was something yeah. in that depth of despair <laughs> that was um, had set me free. Because nothing mattered. Yeah. Nothing mattered. No. And, and I, think, I think that is the moment that we're all searching for in sports and in life. We are, we are so present and committed to the moment on our lives that there is no past there is no future it's it's often our name doesn't even exist anymore our bank balance has disappeared yeah. our friends and family for that moment none of that exists and all that exists is the experience that you're having right there in that moment and it's so all consuming that there's no room for everything else and so in some ways that is when you're at your most free i mean for me when i line up for an ultra that moment is what I'm looking for. I'm looking to get to that moment where I am absolutely committed, heart, mind, body, soul. Everything is, is all the cards are on the table and there's nothing left. There's nothing left to give because when you've given everything, from that there is a sense of peace because yeah. th there's, there's a release. It's like, well, I've given everything I can and let's see how the chips fall here because I haven't got anything else, so... But there's, there's something about that connection between body and mind, you know, because when I came through that moment, I physically came back again. Yeah. And I was able to run again. And as a yeah. new, new to the world of ultra running, you know, after the race, it was so empowering. Like I was excited to go out, go out again. And unfortunately, COVID yeah. hit, like, but I was excited to go out again and explore that in more depth because it was like i was like i literally was dead on my feet you know i i wanted to put out the race about half an hour before and then i went through that i don't even know i couldn't tell you if that lasted two hours or, or two minutes by the way you know but i just have a very distinct memory of it and um, but when i came out of that i was able to run again yeah and so for me that's that's a, that's a concept that i would call self-transcendence it's self-transcendence it's when you've got to the limit of what you think you have possible to give you've given everything you have and then you take that next step and it's purely on faith in that moment you don't know if you've got another step in you you don't know if you're going to be able to keep running through that experience this might be it but it seems that when you surrender yourself fully to the moment and give everything you have you step through and there's always something more there's always more to your potential and your capacity than, than perhaps you ever dreamed. And so, but no one, or at least not say no one, but so few of us are willing or brave enough to get to that point of, of being willing to risk everything. And, and that's why when people do sign up for ultramarathons, I'm always a mixture. It's a mixture of, of, of pride and, um, and amazement 
because there's there's something about lining up for any any challenge that's right at your limit, which is so at once it's terrifying, but it also makes you feel so alive. It brings to the fore all of your best capacities because you know this is going to stretch you to your very limits. And so there's something wonderful about. Uh, I mean, that's why I appreciate the ultra running community so much because. Every single person who finishes one of these races, whether it's your first 50K or it's a 100 miler or it's a marathon de Sabs or whatever it is, you have to pay a price to get to that finish line. You have to give part of yourself. And having that willingness to do that um, repeatedly over the years is, is an admirable trait in my books. Yeah, and you always hear people say, um, you know, oh, it's so much in the head, so much in the head, you know. Yeah. Um, and it so much is in the head, but a lot of the things that we yeah. talked about at the beginning um, is bound to help you as a successful ultra runner. Yeah, and and so one of the big things that over the last couple of years um, I've taken on more responsibility in the coaching realm, and so up until this point, my own running was probably my biggest focus in the running um, in the running realm. I also put on races, but. But my own running was was really where I was trying to put a lot of energy in. And in the last two years, I've taken on more athletes. And I've found that to be such a richly rewarding journey in itself. And just it's provided a way for me to crystallize a lot of the things that I've learned over the years and Mm. the way that I've learned to deal with the experiences that you need to go through to be successful in ultramarathons. and so, yeah, that's been that's been a wonderful thing for me to as as an athlete to transition into coaching because then you really have to get your ideas and your the 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 way of doing things that you've found successful for you. You need to see how can I put this into a form that I can explain it and share it with other people, and what things that I use and do are applicable to everyone in their own endeavors. And when you start doing that as well, the cool thing is that you start to realize that. The way that you can, the way for me to be the most successful ultra marathon runner possible is also the way for me to be the best businessman possible. And it's also the way for me to be the best friend possible and the way for me to be the best human being I possibly could be. Because that's that's one of the things I learned from Sri Chinmoy. So, uh, you know, you were mentioning Sri Chinmoy, um, you, you knew of him through the races um, that we put on. Um, he was an absolute man of myriad, uh, myriad talents. He was a musician. He was an author. He was an athlete. Um, he was a teacher. He was an organizer. He was an inspirer. So he had all of these different aspects of his life. He did poetry. He wrote, um, you know, composed music. He sang. He played a whole bunch of musical instruments. He painted. Um, it was like anything that was inspiring and joyful. He had infinite inspiration for that field of endeavor and so you know he trained weightlifting he was trained as a runner he trained as a sprinter he did decathlons he he really embraced life in a way that you see very few people embrace life in our modern world and and so for me that was that was really inspiring to see that you don't need to be a specialist like in our modern age we've become hyper specialized and we've become obsessed with the idea of trying to be as successful as possible in one small unique field but i posit that human beings are not specialists we're the ultimate generalist if we have a whole bunch of different activities going on in our lives that we enjoy there's something very meaningful and fulfilling about that. And it also provides stimulation in a different way. Instead of just doing one thing all the time, to be able to go from 
you know, from working to, you know, to be able to be, you know, doing something completely self-giving, like in a charity basis. And then, you know, to be able to give back to a kid's sports team to, um, you know, to do something creative. All of these things manifest and express a different part of our personality and a different part of our being. And we all have all of those aspects. No one is just an athlete or just a businessman or just, a, just you know, whatever labels or limitations you've been put on you. You're never those things. You're someone who has capacity to, to do anything almost. And it's just a matter of, of willingness and inspiration whether you do it or not. And so Tritonmoy's example he set for me was that you can do all of these things and the same way he approached running was the same way he approached painting was the same way he approached um writing songs it was it was bring all of your capacities bring all of your intensity bring all of your joy and enthusiasm to bear on this topic or this task and it's the same, the same process can be used in all of those different fields, which for me was really revealing because in some ways we often, it's, we seem to think that there's a different way to be a good businessman than there is to be a good father. But the problem for that is if you're trying during the day to be a good businessman and you're trying to be as ruthless and cutthroat as possible, then you come home and then you're trying to deal with your family it's impossible for you to switch that off. You can't just be, you know, a, a, a crook and a rogue or, you know, a hard-nosed person all day at work and then come home and expect to be a loving family man. That doesn't seem to be a compatible... We don't have the ability just to take off one mask and put on another mask. It's the intentions we bring to one task seem to spill into all of the other areas of our lives. And so that's what I always teach uh, the athletes that I deal with is what is our intention here? Because... There's there's many ways to reach the goal, but if you can do it in a way where your intentions line up with what you really value. So if you're coming into, you know, taking on an ultra marathon and your whole intention is like, okay, I want people to be impressed by me and I want to get some good shots for Instagram and, you know, I want to prove to my dad that, you know, that I'm strong and healthy. It's like, those are probably not the best reasons to be out there doing an ultra marathon. It's if we can if we can strip all of those things away because you know you wouldn't go into your family life and decide that's why you're going to try and be a good dad you wouldn't say i want to be a good dad so i can get some good shots for instagram and i can impress the other dads like that would be an absurd way to deal with being a dad but yet we think that when we go to another activity that that's a perfectly reasonable way to approach things so it it seems that and for me personally, I've really found this as I've tried to align all of the little areas of my life and the interactions I have to make sure I'm coming from the same sorts of values and using those same values in all of the areas. My life has become infinitely more simple, but yeah. also infinitely more meaningful because every little opportunity or interaction or area of my life is moving me towards the same goals. And so that means that your life suddenly becomes really meaningful. Even the mundane, ordinary things that you need to do to stay alive on earth can become something meaningful if you're doing them from that, from the right intention. It's like staying true to yourself, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's, it's the, the, one of the big things is knowing yourself enough to be true to yourself. Because a lot of times we hear these cliches, you know, an idea is called a cliche because it's so common that we've actually forgot the meaning of it. And so it's like being true to yourself. Like we know, okay, I should be true to myself. It's like, well, actually, who am I? Like, do I actually have a well-established set of values? 
And if you don't have a well-established set of values for your life, how do you think you can be true to your values if you don't even know what your values are? If you can't actually um, spell out to someone in a concise manner what you actually value, it's going to be very difficult for you to, to live in tune with those values because you're going to find yourself just responding to situations in often the easiest manner possible. So you need to really taking that time. And that's what a good practice does as well. It centers you, it grounds you, it gives you time to think and be aware. And it gives you space to actually start to ponder those things. Okay. What, if I want to look back on my life, what sort of human being do I want to be remembered as? Do I want to be remembered as someone who was cutthroat and was all about themselves? Or do I want to be remembered about as someone who was always willing to give to people he cared about? Do I believe in kindness and generosity and, and, and love and harmony and what it, whatever it is to you that seems valuable. It seems if you can get those centered at the basis of your life, you're going to have a much stronger place to come from than other people who are still looking for those things. Yeah. And we all know people like that, don't we? We all, everybody gravitates towards people like that. There's always one person yeah. in the village who does fantastic for charities and, and gives and gives a lot like, um, and we sort of gravitate towards those people. You know, we want to hang about with those people. <laughs> um, yeah. It's connecting something inside ourselves. Yeah. And I, I think that, 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 that urge to, humans have an amazing ability to imitate. And so that urge, when we see someone we admire, that's, I think that's a really good thing to pay attention to that. Like, what do we, what do we really admire about that person? Because like a good example at the moment is Eliud Kipchoge. So obviously he's a fantastic runner and that goes without saying, but it seems as though he's an even better human being. And I think <laughs> that's the thing. If he was someone who was narcissistic and, you know, came across as jealous and vindictive and, and cruel, I don't think he would have the same impact that he does today because he has such a wonderful way of, he's obviously very eloquent with his ideas, but he seems like he's someone who has over the years has found a way of aligning his running and his art that he practices with the things that he thinks are really valuable. And that's really inspiring when you see that. It's, mm. it's when you see any moments. I think the moments that transcend sports are the ones where you see the real deep human quality. So like a good example is in the marathon um, with the second and third place getters with the Dutchman and the Belgium. And the Dutchman was pulling ahead and could have broken away earlier. But he kept on looking back and motioning for the Belgian runner, who was his dear friend, to come with him because he wanted his friend to get on the podium with him. And so for me, that, that moment was so beautiful because it captured something more than just the cutthroat competition. It showed that we can compete at the very highest level, but we can also value friendship and connection just as highly as, as winning a medal. And so that was a beautiful thing, thing to see. And, and I think all of those little moments you see, like the, the moments that people remember from the games are not just the moments when one sportsman dominated everyone else. It was where someone showed something some transcendent human quality shone through um, in, in, the, in the way they went about their, um, their activity. But you do, like, I've, we've watched loads of these things on YouTube and things like that, and they can be quite emotional. You know, it's just one, or you're, yeah. you're watching that sport and something amazing happens in sport, and it just yeah. sort of builds this emotion inside of you. You know, it's a, yeah. a fantastic moment is happening in front of your eyes right now. Um, so there yeah. is there's something about that. I think sports is, is, is a really wonderful way to put into practice ideas that you've got about how to deal with life. 
because sport is a wonderful game. So it, it, I, I like to I like the concept of that you're a game player. Human beings, we love playing games. And so you've got a whole bunch of games you're trying to play well. So you're trying to play the role of, you know, a family man and a businessman and a business owner and an athlete and a podcaster and, you, you know, a friend, you know, a colleague, whatever it is, you know, you've got a whole bunch of different games you're trying to play. And each of those games has slightly different rules and slightly different ways of, of being successful or unsuccessful. And so you might have some ideas like, okay, I want to try and play in a way that's more self-giving or it's more coming from a place of gratitude or coming from a place of whatever it is. And sometimes it's hard to measure the effect that that quality has on the outcome of that game. Because a lot of games, the you know, like the family game, it's really hard to tell if you're winning or losing in the family game, obviously. You know, it's a constant flat, it's a constant dance. But in the game of sport, it's really good because sport is a very bounded, very clearly defined activity. And especially running for me is great because of the just absolute simplicity. It's just you versus a course versus a clock. So then you can you can approach it and you can put to put to into action different ways of dealing with the, the situation that you deal with in sport. And so in, in, in long distance running, it's obviously there's some discomfort and there's some difficulties that you've got to overcome to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. And so you can try a whole bunch of interventions there. And you can actually see if they have any positive in, uh, impact or not. That you can see if, okay, if I try and if I try and run without thinking, because this is something I've been talking with some athletes about recently, I, I had this idea that there's a continuum of experience. And at one end, there's the experience of thinking about running, but being completely stationary. And so in that, that moment, you're using zero, zero physical energy, but using 100% psychological energy to think about running. At the other end of that spectrum is running without thinking. And so running without thinking for me is the moment where you're fully engaged with the task at hand and the rational part of your mind has no role to play in that moment. So you're fully experiencing the moment of running. So all of your attention is focused on the experience of running. And for me, that is what um, sports psychologists might call the flow state or the ideal mm -hmm. performance state. You're fully there without analyzing, without that sense of separativity. You're fully at one with your activity. And so so you might start to think, okay, if I could learn to run without thinking on a more regular basis, maybe that will help with my running. So you could then try and do that. You could set up some interventions where when you're out doing a 5K time trial or a race, you constantly try and bring yourself back into the moment. You, you set an intervention that, okay, I'm going to focus on my breathing. Each time I have thoughts, each time my mind comes in and starts thinking about, oh, my God, the pace is so fast, I'm tired, my calf's set, just breathe them out, let them go, and try and focus on my breath. Just stay in the moment, stay in that experience. And then you could, you could over a period of time see, okay, did this have a positive intervention on, on my experience of sport? Did it make me faster or did it, did it allow me to run the same speed but enjoy it more? Because that seems equally valid. If you could learn to enjoy your running more and especially your racing, a lot of people enjoy their running. But when it comes to racing, there's, there's you know, this block because it's, there's a story of you know, it needs to be hard and you know, hard is always fast. But I always like to tell athletes what we're trying to do. We're trying to practice. To, we're trying to teach you to run fast, not hard. And so there's not a hundred percent correlation between those two. You could run really hard using a hundred percent muscular energy and really tight, and you just struggle against your own body. And so you're running hard, but you're not running fast. Whereas when you see someone who really has the art of running fast down, 
there's a smoothness, there's an elegance, there's a relaxation. And I think that exists on the mental plane as well. When someone's really using all of their, really struggling through a run, trying to run as hard as possible, that's also hard mentally. Like the, for the mind, you know the place you're in. You can imagine the place someone's in when they're in that situation. And you can compare that to someone like Eliud Kipchoge when he broke away in the marathon on the weekend. They didn't look hard. They looked fast. But it looked absolutely under control, and he looked in some serene state of pure focus on the task at hand. So, so yeah, for, for me, sports becomes this really interesting ground of experiment because we can experiment with the human experience. We can experiment with our limitations and see if perhaps there is a better way of doing things than we've been doing them in the past. You know, one good analogy came to my mind there as you were talking was swimming. Yeah. Um. You know, you can be swimming really, really fast, but you're fighting the water, yeah. the resistance of the yeah. water, and it actually slows you down. Um, but if you can relax and get a better yeah. flow and you stop fighting the water, um, you know, you will go faster and smoother and you and it becomes easier. And it, it can be yes. very similar to that. And we've all had the experience where we've gone out on a for a race. It was maybe a race that you just signed up for last minute and you had no expectations um maybe a friend said it was a good race to come and do and all of a sudden you run a pb just out of the blue yeah because you don't carry any of that baggage or expectation your mind is yeah. in a freer state and yes. my, my half marathon pb it wasn't well it was a for me it was a good pace of 131 um yeah. i hadn't ran quicker than eight minute miles that year you know it was the start of the season i was like how the hell did that happen you know it was just yeah Last minute race, I, think, I just rolled up, didn't use my watch or anything, and just went out on pace, and it was 131. I was like, how the hell did that happen? And, and I think every runner um, relates to that, because you have those races where you you race way better than you've been training, and, and you have no idea, you think you have no idea what happened, but often, like you said, it's a situation where you haven't put the stress and the pressure and the expectation on yourself, so there's a freedom um, that comes there and, and that perhaps that allows you to run more smoothly. It allows you to keep yourself present and puts you in a better performance state than you would be otherwise. You can see the problem I had here now with two podcasts. This is what I said at the beginning. <laughs> We've done a great, yeah. a, a great episode unpacking this. Um, but you're running for those people that don't know who Vajin Armstrong is. A phenomenal elite ultra runner. Um, marathon runner as well um, one race that comes in particular is the ultra race in New Zealand the Kepler Challenge oh yes yep. um, it's, the, it's actually the biggest race in New Zealand so it has a real strong field you won it three years in a row yep. in 2010 yep. to two, like you're pretty young then like what age were you then? Yeah, so, well I was I was 30 when I, I was 29 when I started ultra running and then 30 when I did Kepler for the first time so I just turned 41 this year so and I mean, the good thing about ultra marathons is you don't seem to slow down. You seem to become more competent in the longer distances as you go on. You learn how better, you know, you learn how to read your body more. You learn the, 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 way, of, the way of running becomes more clear to you, I think, over time. I, I think the whole world of ultra running is learning from each other all the time. Yeah. Um, the backyard events that we have is a yeah. good example of that. You know, four years ago, 300 miles would have been um, 
you know, would, would it have been possible or not? You know, we had Johan Steen yeah. on the podcast, who is brilliant for staying in. When you were talking about staying in the present moment and running, he, he's a brilliant yeah. advocate for that. And But now they're all smashing 300 miles. Everybody yeah. is. Our, our next, yeah. our next um, episode is actually with a local guy, Keith. Um, he ran, I think, 312 miles or so. But he went over 300 miles locally. And yeah. A couple of years ago, the likes of Courtney, et cetera, you know, were challenging to try and get that. But now they're past that. So the whole community is learning. And I think the yeah. biggest part of that is a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. You know, we've got ourselves in great physical um, condition. You know, we're, we've, we're really dialed in nutrition. But it's now this whole mental aspect. And a lot, yeah. of, the, a lot of the journey is just self-belief now because other people are doing it. You know, it's like the four-minute mile. You know, it's like, whoa. This can be done. Yeah, and I, I I like that. That's that's a very very good analogy. That once the four minute mile barrier was broken, then it, it opened up people's minds to what was possible. It was suddenly that self imposed limitation of that this time was this big barrier and it was going to be incredibly difficult to do. That almost seemed to be a limiting belief. And so as soon as that limiting belief's gone, the floodgates open and a whole bunch of people pour through. And so it's, it's interesting to think how many of our limits that we deal with are, are just simply limiting beliefs that we've been carrying around with us. And so it might not even be in sports. It might be in other areas of your life. You might think that you're not a musician or that you could never paint or you could never be you know, a singer or a potter or, or something like that. But often it's simply that you've never given yourself the chance to, to try those things. You've never put in the work that you need to do to be successful in any of those things. So... So uh, that's, that's one of the things that I hope people can, can see from their running, actually, is you take steps and you move forward and you grow and you develop. But it's, that should be a pathway how you live other areas of your life as well. That, that same concept of, oh, okay, you know, I'm infinitely better than I was three or four years ago. What about other areas of my life? Can I, could I bring some of the, the skills that I've learned through running and especially ultramarathons, can I bring that to bear on some other issues or areas in my life and become infinitely more accomplished in those areas as well so that seems to me to be another because often people don't see that correlation they see oh that's the athletic part of your life that's something completely separate from you know your business life or your you know your creative life or whatever it is but it, it seems if you can link those up that seems like then your time spent running is, has got a double benefit. It's making you a better runner, but if it's also making you a better human being that can go and do other good things, that seems like that's really worth, worth your while then. Yeah, we, we had some amazing people on the podcast who a couple of years ago um, didn't even know the world of running, you know? Yeah. Um, one girl in particular stands out in mind, and she used to do the, the wacky races, I think it's called, um, where you take yeah. your dog along. And oh, yeah. you, you run with your dog. And two years yeah. later, she entered the, the 24 hour in Belfast that we had. Yeah. Um, she come the Irish national champion. And there was no self belief before that, you know. And I always yeah. think to myself, what happens if Jimi Hendrix had never picked up the guitar, you know, or yeah. John Lennon never picked up a pen? Everybody has got this ability. Um, sport is great for building a self belief structure that you can then. Because I, yeah. I, I do now feel I could do anything I set my mind to. It might take hard work <laughs> yeah. to get to that. Um, that's a key thing. Um, but, 
you know, through the world of running and doing things I thought weren't possible before. It took me a month to run 2.4 miles in 2011, you know, to come to where it's at now. You know, I've got registration into UTMB, which is fantastic. Um, which yeah, I've that de- is. I've deferred it to 2023, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. with all the stuff that's going fair, on. Fair enough. See, yeah. in your Kepler challenge, one thing that really stuck out with me then was last year. Because sub five is like that's a golden egg on that race like yeah um and i was wondering was this an error in the the race records you ran 435 last year yeah oh well, so last year that's that's a good point last year we had what was called the storm course because the uh, there was a really bad storm came through up high so the last two years we haven't managed to get all the way around the loop because it's a big single track loop 60 kilometers through the fjordland wilderness so yeah it's got a huge 15 kilometer alpine section so unfortunately the last two years we got hammered by storms and so we haven't been we've gone up to the top dropped back down and done an out and back at the other end so um, i thought there was yeah. some magic pill involved there i was like how the hell did he knock 20 minutes off <laughs> yeah he's now become I still, I still believe that I still have unfinished business. I mean, I've, I've run the race. This will be my twelfth year running it. Um, wow. So, but I still feel as though that there's still, still potential growth at that event. So I'm still keep coming back because it, it's, for me, I have to say one thing about that race is that is a race for me that really captures everything that is good about ultra marathoning. It's a total community event. It's put on by a bunch of local volunteers. Everything about the races, they could sell out twice over, but they choose to keep it limited to 450 runners because they want to make sure the runners have the best possible experience on the track. And everything about it is just local people wanting to share their part of the world with guests and look after them and host them as well as possible. And and that, for me, is is really the quintessence of what a good ultramarathon is about. It's about passionate local people wanting to share some place that's beautiful and they have a connection with and they want you to come and have a beautiful time there and and yeah you really feel it it comes through in every aspect of that race so hence why i've been down there 12 years in a row to run it so what's just for i'm gonna say we are the inspirational runner so for the running geeks like um as is everybody listening sorry about that um like you do a lot of mileage don't you yeah, so I mean, uh, running for me is is also part of my spiritual practice. I would say so. I'll normally run twice a day, so I've done that for almost twenty years. So I'll do hundred miles plus each week. So good weeks, I might be 200, 220 kilometers. Um, if I'm doing a lot of speed work, I might drop that down a little bit. But for me, that's been an amazing journey. Like when I, because I ran a little bit as a teenager, and then I stopped for many years um, when I was on my spiritual quest. And and then when I came back to running, um, I got my first serious coach. And when he showed me what a serious plan looked like, you know, it was had twice a day trainings and two hour long runs. I thought he must have been joking. And the funny thing now is I've been following a, a similar plan to that for 20 years. And it just seems like a completely normal thing to do. So, I mean, most days I'm running two and a half to three hours. It's, it's like a common day. And I enjoy the whole the whole process of it. For, for me, the process is the most important thing. Like the process and the journey to get to an event is as value, or is it's actually much more valuable than the event in it, itself. Like w- people often have things the wrong way around. They think the shiny trinket at the end of the journey is the important thing. The shiny trinket 
is almost meaningless if the journey was not richly rewarding. And so it's that that daily practice of whatever art or craft or whatever skill or whatever way of life that you've taken on, that is the thing that's going to determine the quality of your life. You, you, the quality of your life is not going to be determined on an Olympic medal or winning a big race or setting a PB on a particular day. It's the things that you do on a regular basis and, and the intention and the how and the why as to, to what you do on a regular basis. That's your life. Your life is happening every day when it's cold and dark and winter and then when it's windy in the spring or in the fall and you know it's that's what makes up your life it's a series of small tasks and it's the important thing is how and why you're going about those tasks and so so for me on a daily basis i'm i'm i still am incredibly grateful that i have the capacity to get out and run twice a day every day like some days like this morning i was out and we're kind of late winter um, but spring's starting to peak it's it's um it's beautiful floral um, bouquet through and so i was just so incredibly grateful that I, that i could get out and and run along by the river and in those moments there's nothing else i would wish for in my life i'm i feel like the richest man in the world to have the time the capacity and the fitness to do these things and and i've had a couple of really nice experiences i remember a few years ago I was running through a park and an old older gentleman stopped me and he just came up to me. He said, he said, young man, I would give absolutely anything to be doing what you're doing right now. And it's just a great reminder that we're all going to look back on this moment in our lives. You know, all of us who are runners and healthy and fit and doing adventures, even if we're way past our prime, there's going to be another point in 10 or 20 years time. You're going to look back and think, geez, that was really something, you know, when I was even considering doing UTMB or CCC, or even when I was still running marathons, you know, whatever level you're currently at, give yourself another 20 years and you're going to look back and think that was the best times ever, man. That was really something when I could get out and knock out a 20 miler on Sundays. And so don't be someone who doesn't appreciate it while you've got it. Don't be the person who it's not until they have that final injury that, that stops them running or they get too busy or sick or uninspired that they give the whole thing away. Don't appreciate it only then. Try and appreciate it and be grateful for what you have now because that's the most wonderful thing to have the experience and to appreciate it and to be grateful all at the same time. That seems like they say you can't have your cake and eat it, but that seems as close as it can get. If you could be out there still running well, and be grateful and appreciating that this opportunity you have. That seems as close as, as anything I could imagine. Just pure gratitude is what I'm hearing there. Um, yes. I, I used to, and it's it's a great way to start your day with gratitude. So I used, yeah. to, I used to keep a gratitude log where I used to write five yeah, things good. of gratitude down. I, I would yeah. have been grateful for my son coming down in the morning and giving me a hug. I would have been grateful for yeah. having a car to drive to work in just five basic yeah. things um which i found really set my mind for the rest of the day that you were looking at the positive rather than the negative and even the things that you think are basic things they're not basic things for most of the population on earth so i always like to remind people that there's probably three and a half to four billion people who would swap their life for yours in an absolute heartbeat heartbeat and then they would feel as though they'd won the lottery you know, if we took someone from, you know, the Sahara or South Sudan or, you know, myriad places around the world and we let them have your life, they would think, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing I could ever imagine. And so trying to have a real perspective of how fortunate we all are um, 
is is really really difficult and i mean it, it, it's it's actually a practice it is something that needs to be practiced on a regular basis and with gratitude i like to think of it as as a plant and that first of all you've got to plant some seeds so you've got to you've got to almost force yourself to think of some things that you're grateful for so like what you were doing so each day when you get up in the morning, choose a couple of things to be grateful for. And then you need to water it. So it's like on a regular basis, you need to think back and think of some things that you're grateful for. And and for me, this is actually one of my skills that I, I really focus on teaching my athletes is how to bring gratitude into their racing and their training experiences. Because in every moment, no matter how bad it is, there's still something to be grateful for. You know, I can I could say, you know, you may have, you know, you may be having a really bad time. Uh, you, your quads may be shot. Um, you might have your digestion may be really off. You can't get any food down. And you think, oh, my God, this is so terrible. In that moment, there's still hope. You can say, okay, well, I'm really grateful. At least I don't have chafing. And so there, <laughs> the, and th that's the thing. Like, things could always be worse. And that's why the analogy of hell being something below you really works because wherever you are, you could always dig down and find something that's worse than what you have right now. So even when you think things are terrible, if you can flip that around and think, well, I'm grateful because of this, or, or look around and say, well, at least I'm in a beautiful place, or at least there's some nice people here to run with, or at least the person in front of me has some funky socks on. There's, even choosing one small point to focus on can immediately take you out because how I how I try to explain to people who haven't experienced the dark spiral of the mind, I'll call it, is that you're out running, there's, a, there's some feedback from your body. So say you're getting a message from your quads and your quads, you know, it might be a hilly mountain race and your quads are starting to tell you, okay, we're suffering from quite a bit of trauma here. So what you do in that moment is the rational analytical part of your mind will start focusing on that feedback. It'll start focusing entirely on, okay, the quads aren't feeling good. And then you start to think, yeah, they're really not feeling good here. And then you get more feedback. Oh, yeah, they're really they're feeling terrible, actually. I don't know how I'm going to finish this race. And so you start talking in this very mm. negative way, and it just goes down and down and down and down, and things get darker and darker and darker and darker. Whereas there's another way of dealing with that whole situation. So bringing an intervention of looking at gratitude. Okay, the quads might not, might not be good at the moment, but actually my heart and lungs, you know, my cardiovascular system's feeling really strong. You know, my nutrition's feeling strong. So there's actually some, some you've got some a lot of good things going for you in that moment. So immediately just taking it from something that's some negative stimulus and focusing on the things positive that are going on there. So that's, that's a really powerful intervention. And, and even sometimes one of the best things I've actually learned from the spiritual life is this concept of acceptance. And so, cause I've been in situations in a key race for me where I've trained really hard and my quads have felt terrible early on in the race. And so what I've said to my body basically is, okay, I accept the fact that you're not feeling great. But I said, it was like, I almost had a conversation with my quads. Like, okay, I'm really sorry though, but we're still just going to have to keep going at full speed ahead. You know, this is not the time for slowing down here. And it's like just from accepting the experience, it somehow takes the edge off it. When you try and resist it, when you try and resist reality, it always comes and kicks your ass. There's always suffering involved when you resist reality. If you can accept it and say, okay, well, that's just the way things are here. I'm going to try and focus on some positive things and keep moving forward. Suddenly, it's not so much of a problem. It's when you try and say, oh, my God, you know, I trained for a whole year for this and this is terrible. My quads are dead and 
that does not help at all in those moments. You start using so much psychological energy um, to deal with those problems that it becomes so counterproductive that you can easily talk yourself out of what could have been a good performance. And so learning in those moments, having the self-awareness and having some tools. And that's what I always tell athletes who I'm training for long races. I want to give you as many tools as possible because there'll become moments when you're going to need something, whether it's to use a mantra or use some mindfulness practice or to, to think of something to be grateful for or to practice some acceptance or whatever it is, giving them a whole tool bag to pull out because there's going to be something that's going to help unlock that experience and get you through and out the other side. And, and like you with your experience with the CCC, those terrible dark moments, if you find the right key and keep moving forward, you can unlock something and come out the other side and start running again. It's, it is a remarkable thing. But yeah, the, the CCC it, was a, a good example because you used the word, there's two things I've learned through ultra running. I was sort of laughing there as well because I was thinking about um, in my marathon running days when everybody's at the start yeah. line and we throw it all out there, you know, oh, I haven't been running well the last two weeks, you know, my ankle's a bit stodgy. I, I was in an ice bath yesterday, got a little blister and you hear it all at the start of the marathon race. Yeah, There's that much energy there and um, in the ultra world, it's slightly different. But the two words that I sort of learned were acceptance and patience. Those are two, yeah, good. So, two, perfect. two key things. And what I learned in CCC was I had the best 60K I'd ever run because I didn't care what happened. I was there. I was accepting it. And it was like, oh, my quad started getting sore. I go, oh, there you are. I was yeah. expecting you 10K ago. Do you know what I mean? It, was, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a bad yeah. thing to happen. It was an expected thing. So accepted and accepted till the point. Yeah. What happened? And this was new learning for me in the race. Um, was I stopped accepting a different level. Yeah. So it was a longer yeah. race I'd ever been in. You know, it was a tougher race. So it was a new level of acceptance. I hadn't opened that door yet. Um, and what I learned, my reflection at the end of that race was, and when you were talking about it, I wrote down the word resistance. I started resisting the situation. And that was my yes. big takeaway in that race was instead of just learning that I was in a different situation and, and going to a deeper level of acceptance, I started resisting. And the smallest things, <laughs> yeah. your mind just focuses on that and it makes it tenfold worse than it actually is. Exactly. And yeah. you go down into the, the, the pain cave then. Um, and that was my biggest reflection. And after that, I mean, literally it disappeared after I crossed the line. You know, it was like, how did I get into UTMB? I was excited for my next race to take that learning forward to because I'd recognized uh, that that resistance came back in because it doesn't matter it's only a running race do you know what i mean what are the yeah. consequences there are no like yeah. you only think you're suffering you're not suffering you're just going about 30 seconds a mile slower that's not suffering <laughs> there's people lying in beds no. in hospitals they're suffering and they're 10 times yeah. worse than you're feeling right now this isn't suffering yeah. just keep on moving forward yeah. and accept what's happening yeah and, and on some level, there's a sense of, uh, I try and take some responsibility as well. It's like, I chose to be here. No one forced me to be in this experience. So I'm going to choose to accept this experience and try and make the very best of it. And so even races that go sideways on you because of one reason or another, you can resist that whole experience and make it turn that race into a disaster. Or you can still find a way to keep working through all of those things and accepting all of the levels of, of difficulties uh, that you're dealing with and still come out with a good result. And for me, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I've probably run nearly 70 ultra marathons. I've only had a couple of DNFs, which were from pure injuries that I had had coming in or 
um, um, that happened out on the trails. But basically every other race I've managed to just keep present and keep problem solving. So even I've had races that have gone terrible from early on, I've still come out with, with results that I'm proud of. And I'm actually sometimes more proud. Like one of my most proud races is um, Swiss Alpine Marathon in Davos in Switzerland. So a very famous old yeah. big loop course. And so the first time I had a really good race here, I was racing Jonas Bud, who was the world 100K champ at that time. And I dropped him going up the big climb to the Surtig Pass. And by the top, I had a thing I had a five-minute lead. I didn't know this at the time, though. And then there's a really technical descent for a few kilometers, and then you get onto a dirt farm road. And so I was absolutely flying down through this rock garden, just wanting to stay away from him because I, I always knew he was going to be coming for me. And I got to about 100 meters away from the start of the dirt road. And I looked up and looked at the dirt road and I thought, yes, I'm through the technical part. And at that moment, I clipped a toe, flew through the air, came down on my side, landed on my elbow and I broke two ribs. Jeez. And so suddenly it went from the perfect race to the situation where I got up and suddenly I'm just in a world of hurt and I'm hobbling along. And it didn't take, probably a couple of kilometers later, Jonas passed me. But in that moment, I could I got to choose. There was a moment there where I could make a choice. Do I want to accept? Do I want to just um, choose to to for this to be the story of my day? Like, okay, something bad happened. I fell over. I hurt myself. That's it. Because I was coming into an aid station. I had some friends there. They could have picked me up in the car. We could have driven to the finish. It would have been no problem, and no one would have judged me for it. But it's one of those moments in your life where you hope that when things get difficult and dark and challenging that you will rise to that occasion and you'll be willing to, to pay the price it takes to finish that thing off. And, and I was so proud of my run up to that point. It's like, okay, I got to the aid station, I grabbed a sponge, wiped all the mud and dirt off myself and just said, right, I'm just going for it. And so I ran as hard as I could the final 10 kilometers and no one else managed to pass me. And, you know, I was probably running 20, 30 seconds slower than I was hoping to over that section per kilometer. And I, I felt terrible, but I was so pleased looking back on it. That is one of the, the moments I'm most proud of in my running career where something happened that I could have easily taken the, the, the easy option there and pulled, it, pulled the pin, called it a day. But I wanted to see, I wanted to give myself fully to that experience. And so I was willing on that day to fight with everything I had to get to that finish line. And and so people would say to me afterwards, oh, such a shame. I was like, that wasn't a shame. That was an amazing yeah. lifetime experience. You know, I'll carry that with me forever, ever, because now I know that like bad things could happen and I am someone who I've proved to myself that I can stand up, get back on the horse, keep fighting with everything I've got to the bitterest end. And so for me, that's much more valuable than, you know, whether I'm first or second on the podium that's that's almost irrelevant. The the the, the value of what I learned out there on that day was was infinitely um, more powerful for me. And it builds your character as well, doesn't it? It's, and it's a lot of yeah. confirmation of everything you've learned. I remember um, watching, I think it was two thousand nineteen, um, the last few runners coming in in UTMB, you know, and they were getting close to cutoff mark. It's such yeah. like we've seen all the the front runners come in, all the podium winners coming in. They're just mind blowingly fantastic. Um, hardly sweating, you know, <laughs> jogging down yeah. the line, like, and then you, you, you look like people have been, um, in the forest for about two weeks arriving <laughs> onto the platform 
and they are think, every ounce of their soul has been left behind and they're still moving forwards trying to get yeah. into the cut the cutoff like and it's quite a it's an amazing experience just to go and watch that the energy that it oh, gives yeah. yourself as a human being to see these people yeah. is amazing it is because uh, i've done the same thing and it is a deeply human experience and and often that they're no longer walking straight you know they may be <laughs> you know on a, a big angle to the left or the right or hunched over in some way but the the amazing thing is uh, like you you just um, touched on the price that those people were willing to pay to get to that finish line is actually in some way much higher than than the people at the front of the field the people at the front of the field have genetic um, advantages they've got physical you know body type advantages they've got training advantages they've got every advantage possible and so for them to race hard and get there in 22 hours 21 hours whatever it is 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 a remarkable feat of of um you know high speed running over difficult terrain but the people at the back the the price that they pay is you know they're dealing with you know their deck of cards they're dealing with or you know what they've brought to the battle is like you know they've brought like a toothpick you know a fork whereas the guys at the front are you know fully fully decked out with with every possible advantage these guys taking you know 40 something hours i mean absolutely my take my hat off to all of those people because i know the price that i pay in a long hard race to get to the finish line and someone who has less time for training you know more work responsibilities or you know whatever their personal situation is and, and just their purely the, the physical body they're dealing with, sometimes they're working so much harder for a pr- prolonged period of time to get to the finish line. And for me, that that's if we talk about character building, yeah. some of those people, yeah, they, they show something that's just, I think it's that quality of grit. There's something very, and when you see it, when you see it manifested in front of you in a human form, it is incredibly moving. It's like you 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 stand there and and it's, it does bring a tear to the eye because you see this person has has really paid the ultimate you know is, they've given themselves absolutely and completely to this experience to get to that finish line and Espe- especially if you're a runner yourself and an ultra runner yeah and you've been in those situations yeah. and you can you can see from these people that they've had numerous numerous ones along that path to get to this point and you can see the tears coming in their eyes and you're connected to that person and their experience yeah. for that small moment in time that fleeting moment yeah which is a beautiful thing Vajin, ah uh, we i know we could talk all day long um yeah but i appreciate your time i know it's 11 o'clock at night with yourself um i've actually got a group of 10 kids and 10 parents waiting to do a bit of oh um, fantastic we've got fantastic. a bit of a treasure hunt set up up, up in the mountains um we're going to do a bit of Beautiful. orienteering i'm meeting them in half an hour um yeah. this has been a fantastic experience um I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to this back over and over again like um it's been the perfect interview to be honest so appreciate your time Oh, I thank you. I, I'm, it's it's always for me. It's very inspiring seeing people like yourself taking the time to share other people's stories to a wide audience. And I mean, I, I'm lucky that I've got a group of people that I'm connected with, and and I can influence and and share some stories and share the things that I've learned. But any opportunity and any time, there's someone like yourself who has that openness and that enthusiasm and that willingness to do the work that needs to be done to to bring these into fruition and actually share them with a wider audience. 
I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to, to you for doing this and, and just allowing me to talk to a, a bigger group of people and a bigger audience, because I think we all learn from each other. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation with you as well. And the, the things you've brought up have been just wonderful to, to sort of bring forward ideas for me as well. So it's been very much, you know, a, a very reciprocal experience, I think. And um, but I mean, everything that I've learned, I'm incredibly grateful to have learned. And none of it is my knowledge or wisdom. All of this information, everything that I've learned is, is the collective wisdom of humankind. People have been pondering these ideas for countless centuries. Since we became self-aware, we've been trying to figure out how best to live a human life. And so I'm not claiming that any of this knowledge is new or <laughs> perfect, but it's things that I've learned that have actually made a profound difference to how I've experienced reality. And so it seems like when you learn something that you really value, the, the right thing then to do is pass it on to others. If, if something's worked for you, some of these things will perhaps um, touch and, and be useful for someone else along the road. So, so I wish you all well on your adventures through life and, if we can keep inspiring each other, that seems the way that humans are going to pull ourselves together and and, and show our true potential in the future. A beautiful way to finish. I'm going to leave you with the alchemist because um, very much is what we're touching on there as well. You know, the journey, <laughs> yeah. the journey is so much more important than the destination. Um, yeah. So thanks for being part of that. Thank you indeed. Appreciate that. Thank you. I don't even know where to start with this episode. Vajin is one of the most interesting people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing on the podcast. It's true that we carry unnecessary burden through our races and in life in general. A thought-provoking interview that I hope can inspire you in some way or form and help to bring you another step closer to your true potential. We have some backyard chaos coming up next with Ireland's latest winner, Keith Russell, who managed to go past the magical 60-hour barrier on an amazing showdown during the Atlas running event at Florida Manor. Really looking forward to it. So until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.